The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, I want to back up and just review a little bit the context because understanding these verses, it's real important that we get the bigger picture. Uh, and if you remember, um, we looked a few, a few weeks ago in Romans 8:17, which is really the beginning of this, uh, this section. And in verse 17, Paul says this. Uh, he says, And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Okay, that's the good news. We've been adopted into his family as his children. Good news, great news. It really ought to be for each and every one of us our identity in Christ that we are, above everything else, uh, his children. As Bill said, we go to our Father for those answers and for that insight and wisdom. But then he throws this zinger in at the end. And I could live without some of these zingers of, of Paul's. He says, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I could live a long time without that one, right? Uh, this whole suffering thing. Uh, but he's clear that if we're to be God's children, it doesn't mean that God protects us or Im- makes us immune to trouble and difficulty in life. In fact, he says that quite the opposite, that uh, the if there is a condition that it's, it will happen, that we will all share in some type of suffering uh, as believers and as his children. So then he takes this next section and he, he lays out three reasons why uh, we can take hope or comfort in the midst of our struggles and our suffering. Uh, the first one he, he talks about in the first verses after that, that we have great hope in what's to come. So we're to be focused not on our problems now, but we're really to be focused on the eternal reward that we'll receive when Christ returns and restores everything, uh, makes the world new, and puts us in the center of a new, restored, created order. Uh, so there's hope in that. Uh, So we shouldn't get bogged down in right now. We ought to be looking towards the end. Have you been doing that? Hopefully. And hopefully it's encouraging. When you have bad days that go, you know, this is not the finish line. The finish line is out there, and I'm going to endure until I get to that finish line. Uh, Last week, Nate shared uh, that we also have a great advocate who's interceding for us. The Holy Spirit prays along with us, and he indwells us. He knows our heart, our thoughts, and he somehow, mystically and magically, in ways we can't really explain or understand, partners in prayer with us. And he prays and intercedes deeply uh, with us and for us uh, before the Father. Uh, And he ends that verse in verse 25 by saying that... uh, Right page here. Uh, he says, uh, but if we hope for, um, I'm sorry, not verse, 20, verse 27, he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Right? So the Holy Spirit is joining with us, praying God's will into our life. So that ought to give us hope in the midst of struggling and difficulty. That God is, and the Holy Spirit is praying that we would walk into and see God's will accomplished in our life. Right? Uh, and then we come to the third point. And, and the second point actually raises some, some 
some questions or some issues, right? And the issue is really this. Uh, it kind of comes back to the whole problem of evil in the world. You know, if the Holy Spirit is praying for me, and the Holy Spirit is praying for God's will in my life, then why is it so much of my life is so hard, right? Uh, is this really God's will? And it raises all these questions about God's will and evil in the world, right? Did God, is he up there trying to just torture and torment me? Is that his, his plan? Is this really his will? Uh, the, this father, you know, and, and Paul said that this, this dad that has got this twin sons that are, one's died, one's dying. He's a Christian. He's a believer in Christ. He's somebody who trusts God. Um, and he's watching his second son being taken away from him. That's a hard thing. It's an evil thing. And uh, is that God's will, right? Is that God's purpose and plan? What well, raises those kind of questions? And for all of us who deal with loss and pain and grief, um, when we encounter those times, um, that's a question that comes up, right? Is this really God's will? Have I messed up somewhere? Did I sin somewhere along the way? Did I take a wrong turn? And I'm, I'm bearing the consequences as a result of something that uh, people call God's second best will, right? You know, his perfect will and his, well, you screwed up, so this is what you get will, right? But I don't believe in. I believe God's will is perfect and good always, right? But how do we reconcile suffering in our life and hardship and pain uh, with this fact that the Holy Spirit is praying God's will into our life? Either he's not very good at this praying thing, or I don't know how to reconcile that, right? So Paul recognizes that, and he, he, uh, he takes it one step further. Um, and this is real life, and, and there's lots of evil. You know, there are there's cancers, there's diseases we will never be cured from, there are accidents that may leave us disabled. Uh, we... we our children are not immune to it, and sometimes children die or suffer terribly. Um, and, and it can be simpler things as well. I got a, a letter from a missionary this past week who uh, used to be here in Chiang Mai. Uh, they had to leave the field because they didn't have enough support. And now they're back home, and he's, after serving God for many, many years, he's unemployed and can't find a job, right? And you think, where's the justice in that? Where's the fairness in that, right? But that's how life works. I have another good friend. Same thing this last week. Served as a pastor for about 25, 30 years in a church, faithfully laboring in a small, small rural community. Um, after 25 or 30 years of ministry, the church kind of ran him out and decided they didn't want him anymore. So for the first time in his life, he ended up unemployed and uninsured which in the United States is a dangerous place to be. And after 30 years of being healthy, he completely ruptured his bicep tendon, right? Which is not a good injury. And uh, so here he has no insurance and doctor bills and hospital bills. And it's like, God, that's not fair. Why couldn't, why couldn't this happen before he lost his insurance, you know? What is your will, right? Well, um, Paul addresses some of these things, and there are some things he does not address uh, in this passage. But let me just say, it's kind of a um, precursor, that bad things are not God's fault, okay? God is not up in heaven plotting ways to make your life miserable, 
Okay? In fact, it's not necessary. He doesn't need to do that because there's enough evil in the world. He doesn't have to plan it for us, right? Um, and he's not the cause or source of evil. Now, there is a sense, and we don't want to get into all the side trails of this. He does allow it. But the truth is we live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. And Paul speaks of that in Romans 8.22 where he says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth till now. Right? We live with this world that's groaning under the pain and suffering of the effects and consequences of sin. Um, the truth is that the evil in the world mostly is our own doing. It's the, it's the result and effect of sin. And it's never God's will in the sense that God programs it or that God designed it for us or that God thought, you know, life is too good for these people. I'm going to send torment on them because I just delight in watching people squirm. Okay, that's not God's heart or who he is. Um, and he will one day, Paul writes in, in, in Romans 8, 22 through 26, that he will restore all things through the work of the cross. He will remake creation. He will perfect it once again to its rightful order so it's no longer broken. But, but it's not happened yet. And we live in a time where evil will invade and affect our life. So uh, the question remains... Uh, you know, is God good? Is his will good? Uh, are these things that come into our life uh, good when they're so hard? And Paul answers affirmatively by saying, we know that for those who love God, for those who love God all things work together for good. Right? All things work together for good. Um, most translations put the phrase, uh, we know that those who love God, after the all things work together, right? We probably memorize it something like this. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But actually in the Greek, uh, it splits those two last phrases. And the uh, those who love God phrase is actually first. So if we translate it literally, it really is, to those who love God, all things work together for good. And it's, uh, it's an important starting place. Um, uh, we are described here by Paul as people who love God. A very unique expression for Paul. Paul hardly ever talks about Christians in these terms. He almost always describes followers of Christ as people God loves, as people God calls, as people God chooses, as people God saves. But it is true and it is a reality that if we are his children, we are people who love him. And it really is the starting point of this goodness, right? Uh, what makes our life good at any level is a relationship, a love relationship with God as our Father. Uh, I don't care what your life is like. I don't care how good or bad. You can be the wealthiest person in the world and have the most spoiled, comfortable, perfect, perfect, idealistic life in the world. But in scripture terms, if you are not in a love relationship with God, there's nothing good about it, right? Uh, goodness means being rightly related to God. Uh, and, and we've got to start in that point. And Paul starts where he says, for those who love God, for those who have come into a right relationship with the Father where they have come to understand his incredible love for them, and have been touched and affected by his love poured out on the cross. They've accepted the redemption and cleansing and change that comes through Christ. For those people who now respond 
by giving love back to God in adoration and worship and service, right? for those people, there is now the potential and hope for everything in life to, to be good. Right? And so for us, the first starting point of our discussion here is, you know, do I have a relationship with God? Uh, and is that relationship one in which I love him? Uh, there's a kind of relationship we have with God where he's not our father, but he's our ATM machine, <laughs> right? Where he's our heavenly uh, make-a-wish person, right? And I use God, I manipulate God, I do what I think he wants so that he will do things for me. Well, that's, uh, that's turning everything upside down, and if you're in that kind of relationship with God, you have a problem. And uh, for you, life won't be good. And, and what happens when we're in that mode, this is how it works. We serve God, we labor for God, we do all these good things for God. And uh, when we put the ATM card in that says, look, God, I've, I've stored up credit. You owe me now, right? I prayed today. I read my Bible. I told 10 people about Jesus. And, uh, you know, I, I've, been, I've been a good person. Now you owe me what I demand of you, Right? Well, if you're in that mode, life's not going to go well for you. And when bad things happen, struggle, suffering, hardship comes into your life, uh, you're not going to see anything good in it, right? Because that's not the, the parameters of your relationship. That's not the nature of the relationship you're seeking with God, right? And you're going to be angry, and you're going to feel that God has cheated you, right? But... For those who are in a love relationship with God, who have identified him as their father, who understand that his fatherness is not like earthly fathers, but it's a father who is in every way loving, good, and perfect, who provides and protects and cares for his children with abundant, overwhelming love, and who only wants from us, above all else, our, our, our love, our affection. And whatever obedience or service or work we render to him, we do it motivated out of a heart of just love. Right? Well, uh, for those people, uh, there, there's, there's something redeeming or hopeful about suffering. Right? So we've got to start there, for those who love God. Uh, but then he says that for those who love God, good things um, can happen out of bad. Right? There, uh, there is a good work of bad things. And he puts it this way, all things work to, together for good. All things work to a good purpose. Now let's break that phrase down word by word real quick. First, all things. Um, Paul probably does mean by this, literally, everything in life. All things. Good things, bad things, neutral things. Things I do to myself. Uh, things I do to others. Things others do to me. Things from God, things from Satan, uh, sin, righteousness, all things. But given the context, he probably is especially thinking of the bad things, right? Because he's talking here about suffering for Christ. So he's talking here about the things that we would call maybe evil or bad, the things we don't like. Um, specifically these things. And it's not hard to see how good things that we like <laughs> work together for good. Uh, nobody argues with that one, right? Um, it's the hardships that we question where God is at in the midst of it, right? And he says that all these things work together for good. Um, in, 
when I was in graduate school, my degree was in counseling. And Counseling 101, the first lesson we learned, and the lesson that uh, we were told over and over repeatedly again, was this. They said, you know, preachers use this verse to counsel. Don't ever do that. Right? It's like, okay. Because <laughs> it's bad counseling. Right? This is just bad counsel. When people come to you hurting and suffering, and you just say to them, well, you know, all things work together for good to those who love God. Um, and that kind of made sense to me at the time. It seemed a bit callous and insensitive. And it's true that this can often be a pat answer that we throw at people when we don't know what else to say. Oh, you just lost your child? Well, don't worry about it. You know, all things work together for good. It does sound a bit harsh, right? Um, oh, you just lost your job and you're starving to death. Well, don't worry. God, you know, all things work together for good. So I took this to heart, and I was very careful to never use this verse uh, with people who are struggling or suffering. But the problem with that is that when you read the verse and you read the context, that's exactly how Paul uses it, right? Paul has people suffering, struggling, and hardship coming to him and saying, we're suffering, you know, we, we're struggling with this idea that God's will could include this hardship. We don't know what to do. And he says, well, all things work together for good to those who love God. Um, so the truth is, we should use this verse, right? In fact, it is uh, rightly understood, one of the most encouraging, hopeful things that we can give to people in the midst of hardship and suffering. But the problem is, we've got to understand what it means first, right? Uh, we need to carefully unpack what Paul is really saying here, so that we're not just giving a flippant, pat answer that we don't even know what it means, right? But there is great power and truth in these words for people who are suffering, for us when we suffer, when we counsel and encourage and come along others who are dealing with hardship. Um, Paul is saying this to hurting people, and it's a fitting response. So what does he mean? What is he really saying here? Uh, well, first off, he says, uh, he says all things work. All things are working together. All things are, uh, are working out something. Uh, now, he, it's, it's important to see that what he does not say here is that all things are good, right? He's not saying that all the evil in your life is good. He's not saying that. And if, if you're dealing with people or if in your own life there's suffering, there's death, there's disease, there's hardship, there's nothing good about those things. And Paul's not trying to say the suffering in your life is in itself inherently good. Okay, that's ridiculous and silly. It's not. It's evil, oftentimes. Oftentimes it's directly from Satan. Oftentimes it's the result of sin done against us, or often against, it's the result of our own sinfulness. Right? There's nothing good in those things. Um, he does, he's also not saying here, he does not say, you know, everything will work out. Which oftentimes when we quote this verse to somebody, that's kind of what we mean, right? What we're saying is, well, you know, it'll all work out somehow. And in the end, it will all be good. Paul is also not saying that. He is not promising us here that when you have difficulty and struggles in your life, that it's going to work out to a good end. Right? Your child might die. You might get cancer and die. You may get in an accident and be permanently disabled. Right? And Paul's not promising here that as God's children, he's going to protect you from any of that. The truth is, He's talking here about suffering, and he's saying that the things in themselves are suffering, and they may not work out the way we want. 
It may not work out as we hope or as we even pray, right? But what he does say is this. He says that these things are doing a work. And that's really what the word implies here. It means that they are proving advantageous or are beneficial or are profitable. Not in the, um, the, of themselves, but because of what they are accomplishing as a result of their being in our life. Right? That these bad things, these hardships, are, are going to be used by God to produce something in us and through us. Uh, God did not invent these things, as I said. Um, uh, he doesn't need to, right? He's talking about in the natural flow and course of life, things will come along that God did not necessarily ordain and send. You know, he didn't, he's not sitting up there thinking, you know, Tim's been way too happy. And life's been going way too good for him. We just can't have this, right? He doesn't have to do that because life has enough of its own hardship. Uh, living in wor- this world is full of it. And when those things come into our life, those struggles, those difficulties, God says that's not a problem because I know how to use these things to a good end. But that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, God promises he will use every circumstance in our life to produce something good in us. That's what he's saying. Um, now, uh, at this point, I'm not still terribly encouraged. Right? I'm, not, I'm not thinking, oh, this, this makes me feel a lot better now. A little better, but not much. Um, and we need, to, we need to take it a step further. So we've looked at uh, all things work. We need to look at this phrase, for good. Uh, what does he mean by for good? Um, what is this good end? Well, and how do, we, how do we measure it? Or how do we define it? What goodness is? Um, one of the reasons this could be bad counsel or advice is because we misunderstand this idea of good. And when we say to somebody, all things work together for good, what oftentimes is meant is, in the end, this will work out the way you want it to. Because that's how I define goodness, right? To me, goodness means what I like. That's good. What's not good are things I don't like. So chocolate is good. Liver is not good. Okay, in my world, right? Um, but is that really how we are to understand or define good? Is that how we measure what, what is good? Um, well... Goodness uh, must be defined ultimately in how something fits its, its designed purpose. Right? That's really what, how we define what's, if something is good or not. Okay, how does it fit or measure up to its designed and intended purpose? Um, and and we, we have to evaluate goodness in terms of its purpose or function. For example, uh, if I say... I, if I go to a sports store and I say, I want to buy the best ball you have. Okay. And the, 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 the guy's scrambling around. He's thinking, okay, the best ball, the best ball. What's the best ball? This guy wants to buy it. And I say to him, look, I'll, I'll spend any amount of money if you can get me the best ball. One that's really, a, really a good ball. Right? Well, as the, as the clerk starts scrambling through the store, he starts thinking to himself, well, exactly what kind of ball, right? How are you going to use this, right? And you say, I'm going to play football, right? So he scrambles off, disappears, comes back with a round soccer ball, right? 
But you're not thinking about playing soccer because you're from America. I'm from America, right? You're thinking American football, which isn't even round, right? How can a good ball be not round? But if you're going to play football, right, you don't need a round ball. You need an egg-shaped kind of ball, right? Or suppose, um, you know, suppose you're not going to play football. So you're, you're more of an independent, individual sport kind of person. And, uh, you know, it depends, a good ball, if it's ping-pong or bowling, right? Try playing ping-pong with a bowling ball. I don't care if it's the most expensive, best bowling ball in the world. It's going to be really an interesting game of ping-pong, right? Vice versa. Try bowling with a ping-pong ball. Right? It's not going to work, right? It's got to be suited and fit to its intended purpose. Right? That's what makes it good. That's how we evaluate and measure goodness. So for us, uh, we must ask the question, what were we designed for? What was our purpose? Why are we here? Uh, good has to be measured in terms of our designed and intended purpose before God. Well, why are we here? Are we here to be comfortable? Are we here to be safe, healthy, strong, well-preserved, and happy? Well, I like those things, right? And there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with praying or seeking those things. But is that why we're here? Is that the end purpose of our life? Get to the end of our life, put on our, our, on our, on our tombstone. He was comfortable <laughs> his whole life, right? Wow, I fulfilled my purpose, right? Well, that might be our purpose, and that might be our agenda, but God, who actually manufactured us, on the manufacturer's label, describes a very different intended purpose. And actually, in God's intended purpose, the word comfort, save, not even, not even on the label, right? Not there. Okay, that's not why God designed or created us. Uh, he created us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Right? That is our intended, designed purpose, to bring glory to him. Right? So good must be defined in that terms. How can my life bring glory to God? And uh, how can my life, how can I produce things in my life that, that attribute honor to him, uh, that bring in my heart a place where I enjoy him? And in fact, Paul, so Paul says that. He says, um, to those who love God, all things work together for good according to those called to his purpose, right? Called to his purpose. So the goodness and the working out of that goodness is ultimately not in terms of our own comfort, health, well-being, security. It's ultimately in terms of God's greater design that our lives would be people who glorify him, who enter into a relationship where we enjoy and delight in him. That's how he defines goodness. And when, when we use that phrase with people, we've got to put it in that context. In the bigger picture of God's grand and glorious design for your life, things, uh, suffering, difficulty will produce good things, will accomplish good, as God accomplishes and carries out this designed purpose for your life. Um, so how does that work out? Well, he, he goes on and he says in, in uh, the next verse, uh, For those whom he foreknew... 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Uh, So he actually spells out this great chain. And I love this chain because he starts with eternity past and he spans all of time to eternity future. Right? And this chain, this purpose, this program of God is eternal in its dimension. And we are at the center of it. And he's talking here about us and this plan of purpose he has for us. So he starts with um, living our life in light of this eternal plan that spans from eternity past to eternity future. And he uses, to begin with, he uses three uh, very uh, interesting and related words to talk about knowing or doing something ahead of time. And they're all words that begin in the Greek with the prefix P-R-O, pro, right? So the first one is to know ahead of time. The second one is to, to make a plan or to determine something ahead of time. And the third one has to do with purposing or proposing a plan ahead of time. Uh, and, and God starts those. So he starts here with, on a timeline, you got creation, you got life on earth, you got the end of the world. Maybe I should do it backwards because you guys are looking at me the other direction. You know, so you got uh, beginning of the world, time, end of the world, and then eternity on both ends of it. Well, he starts on the eternal end before time. Uh, and he does three things during that time period. Uh, first of all, it says that he knew us ahead of time. He foreknew us. Um, how do, uh, when we use that word, in fact, it's in, the word actually is the Greek word, Greek, Greek word prognosis, prognosko, from which we get the word prognosis, right? For all of our doctors in our midst, what is a prognosis? Well, you're telling ahead of time how it's going to go for this person, right? You're you're telling them what you know ahead of time about how their treatment plan is going to progress, right? So if you have incurable cancer, the prognosis is you're going to be you're going to live for about 30 more days and then you're going to die, okay? Not a very enjoyable prognosis, but the doctor's saying, I know ahead of time how this is going to go for you, right? Or if we have a good prognosis, they'll say, well, we'll do these treatments and the medicine will do this and in three months you'll be better. That's what we know will happen ahead of time, Uh, right? Well, we use the word like that. We use the word to speak of um, information, things uh, that will happen ahead of time. So, for example... If we predict who's going to win a sporting event, right? Well, this team's obviously better. The other team's players are injured. I, I know that this team's going to win, right? And so if you're a gambling type, you're going to try to cash in on that, right? And you hope you're right. Um, in the medical field, we make these educated guesses about information. But here, the word doesn't have that impact or sense. And uh, the word... Uh, in, in the Greek and also as it's used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint, the word to know is a word that really spells out intimacy and relationship. You know, the Old, Old Testament metaphors, you know, he knew his wife. doesn't mean he just knew her face or her social security number. It means they had intimate relationships of which children were the outcome, right? That's how you say that without saying the word sex because you can't say sex in church, right? Uh, intimate relationship. Right? I know them. Right? And that's really the weight of the word as it's used here. 
He's not saying, I knew something about you. He's not saying that God had like this magic telescope that could look far off into the distant future and with his magic glasses could see us and could see what kind of person we were and could make calculated decisions based on our character, our personality, or our choices. It's not what it, not what it implies. It implies personal, intimate knowledge of relationship. Uh, and Ephesians tells us that, he, he, that God knew us in Christ before the foundations of the world. Right? God in his eternal being knew us. Right? So if he knew us, if he knew us intimately and personally, what he knew about us is what? What a good-looking person I am, how charming and delightful I am, how likable I am. Or did he know that I was a sinful, rebellious creature who hated him? Because that was the truth, right? Whatever other people think outwardly, he knows the heart. And he knew that every single one of us were people who were distant from him, whose hearts were far away, who did not love him, who did not worship him, right? Uh, it's really important that we, uh, that we steer away from a theology that says God somehow based his choice of us on our goodness or on our choice of him or on our faith. Right? Because that means that we somehow merited God's choice. That we did something that impelled or compelled God to act in a certain way because we were good enough. Because we were smart enough to choose him. Because we were bright enough to have faith that, you know, well, they're going to trust me. I guess I'll have to choose them. Okay? God's choice and his knowledge of us is absolutely free. God is sovereign, and he is free in who he chooses and picks. That doesn't mean that our faith doesn't mean anything. Absolutely not. Okay, that would be the other bad extreme to say that God chooses apart from and irregardless of our faith. Okay, he just spent the first four chapters of this book explaining how we need to trust God and believe him. Right? So how do you put those things together? Well, in a three-dimensional world, you don't. Right? But he's talking here about an eternal dimension. Okay, and in that dimension, our logic evaporates. Right? God knew us, and in that knowing, in that relationship, there is implicit a choice. He chose to be in relationship with us before the foundations of the world. Right? So that's where we started. That's where our adventure with God started. Okay? You may think you're only you know, 30, 40, 50 years old. You're way older than that because God knew you since before the beginning of the world somehow, right? Uh, there's something eternal about who we are. Uh, so not only did he know us, but he says those whom he foreknew, those who he uh, chose to be in relationship with before the creation of the world, he predestined. And that word means that he set in motion events that we could not escape from, right? He set, he decreed certain things that he would pursue us and that he would, through uh, the eternal course of redemptive history, by sending Jesus, he would redeem us and bring him to himself. Um, and our faith is key in that, right? We do choose God. There does come a point in time where we become aware of his pursuit of us and we do have to respond and acknowledge him and choose him of our own free will, right? And we must exercise personal faith in what he has done and who he is. Right? That's also true. 
Um, and then thirdly, he says that for those he, he, he foreknew, he also predestined. Uh, but he predestined us to what? Well, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Okay, there is his purpose statement. There's God's divine, eternal purpose statement for every one of us. Uh, what is God's purpose? It's to glor- generically, it's to glorify him. But specifically, how do we do that? Well, Paul says we do that by being like Christ. So God knew us, he predestined us, and he purposed, he proposed ahead of time, he laid down a plan that we would become like Jesus. Even though we were sinful and wicked, we were children of darkness, he would transfer us into the kingdom of light, and he would reshape and remake and remold us into the likeness of Christ. The word there is to morph us, right? Uh, to morph, to transform our life uh, into the likeness of Christ. And this transformation is radical, okay? It's not like, you know, me being changed from the little me as a five-year-old to the big adult me, right? Where there's still some kind of corresponding similarity. It's not what he means. He's talking about a radical polar opposite transformation, kind of like water being transformed into fire, right? Or darkness into light. That's the kind of transformation he's talking about. That's a transformation that's produced through the work of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. Uh, It will be ultimately carried out finally in eternity. But God is working out that purpose in our life right now, right? And so when we put this all together, he says all things work together uh, for those who love God, work together for good to his perfect purpose, which is what? That we would be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. God will use every difficulty, hardship, struggle, um, pain in our life to produce in us Christ-like character and make in us his image. Um, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you can, experience, can testify to that? That I've suffered hard things, but the end result of that is God chipped away uh, the things in my life that were not like Christ to reveal the gem and jewel of who I could be as one who bears his image and his likeness. Uh, to be like the Son. And then not only that, but he takes it one step further. The final goal final glory of is that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers brothers and sisters. Um, God's ultimate design and plan is this, that God the Father, God the Son, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, lived in this perfect relationship as Father and Son. But God doesn't stop there. He wants us to be also his children. That Christ would be the firstborn Son among many brothers that he would have a family of people who share in that kind of relationship with him, his father and son. That is the final goal. Um, so he goes back to his string and he says, so this is how it works. Eternity future, I mean, eternity past. Uh, who he foreknew, he predestined, whom he predestined, he purposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. Fast forward to present. We've been pursued by God. We have been hunted down by him. We have responded to him in faith, and now he is doing this work of producing in us Christ-like character. 
But there's no magic dust. There's no magic wand. What there is is hardship and difficulty and trials and struggle. But God uses all of those things, everything in our life, even my own sin and stupidity, to produce in us Christ's character. But it is a long process, and we have a long ways to go, a long ways to go. So we spend our whole life being, life being shaped and molded and morphed into the likeness and image of Christ. Good news is, fast forward to eternity future. Uh, whom, so so whom, he, whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. That's the present work, making us right with God. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Final, final chapter, eternity future, the end of time, God's going to complete that work. Right? He's going to make us fully image bearers of Christ. What's interesting in this is that those verbs are all past tense. Even the last one, to be glorified. It's a done deal. And it's because God's looking at this from outside of time, beginning to end as a package deal in which we will accomplish fully God's purpose. Wow. We will accomplish fully God's purpose, with or without a mic. God will completely fulfill in us his full and final purpose. Right? So what does this look like in real life? Uh, let, me, let me end with just three simple things. First of all, uh, it is vital that we love God. Right? That the basis of our relationship with God is first and foremost loving him. Right? Not using him. Not being in relationship with him to manipulate God. Because he will not be manipulated. <laughs> Plain and simple. We need to be in a love relationship with him or we're pursuing that relationship. Right? Secondly, and, and here's the thing, if you have somebody who's suffering, dealing with hard times, and you want to encourage them, use this verse, but use it this way. You know, first off, how is your relationship with God? In the midst of all this, can you still love him? Or are you feeling bitterness and resentment toward him? If you're feeling bitterness and resentment toward him, it would be a sign that your love relationship with him is not pure and true. And you need to fix that. Okay? And it may seem a little cruel to say that to a person who's in difficulty and hardship, but they of all people need to hear that. Right? That one reason you're struggling is because you're not in a love relationship with the Father. You've got to pursue that first. You've got to get that worked out first. Second thing. Uh, are you embracing fully his purpose for your life? His purpose. Because that's how we define goodness. Right? All things work together for good. Meaning, are you embracing the longing desire to be Christ-like as much as possible here and now in this life? Right? Or are you just living to be comfortable? Living for yourself? Right? Hard questions. But in the midst of suffering and difficulty, we need to, at that time especially, in, embrace God's eternal purpose, beginning of time to the end of time, right? that we are a part of and that God is working out in us. Lastly, are we really living for his glory? And what I mean by that is this. Um, he's got this plan that, sp that spans all of time, and we will be glorified. And, and ultimately, if we have received Christ, 
His final work is that we will be Christ-like and our life will glorify him as we are transformed from darkness to light. But we have a very unique, rare window of opportunity for the 60, 70, 80 years we live here on this earth. Right? Because it's during this little window of time alone that we can glorify God uniquely as unglorified beings, as partially glorified beings, who still make a lot of choices about sin, about righteousness, about faith, about obedience. Right? Uh, for this window alone, do we have the chance to, to uniquely be Christ-like, not because God zaps us at the end, but because we choose in the midst of suffering and difficulty to respond in a Christ-like way. Right? Uh, and in all of eternity, in all of eternity, our choices to glorify God by being Christ-like in the midst of suffering right now are in all of eternity, a unique opportunity to give him glory. Because right? once we're glorified, once we're changed and transformed, once he's made the magic wand and we're poofed you know, into Christ-likeness, we won't deal with the struggles. You know, we won't suffer anymore. We won't have to figure out what it means to live out Christ-likeness in hardship. We only get the privilege of doing that now. Yay! Isn't that great? It, it's exciting. When we get that perspective, I get the opportunity now to suffer in a way that gives glory to God by being Christ-like in the midst of my hardship and make that worship to God. Right? That's embracing his purpose in a grand way. Right? Saying, God, I want to suffer for you so that in the midst of hardship I can demonstrate the Christ-likeness you are producing in me. That I can respond as Jesus did who who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do just thank you so much that, uh, that there is nobody in all of the universe that I would rather be like than you. Eternal in goodness and kindness, in holiness and righteousness and truth, in every way perfect and in every way rightly related to the Father, um, in every way uh, majestic and, and, and uh, with authority and power. And Lord Jesus, we, we are awed that, that the purpose of the Father was to make us like that, to share in the glory and authority and honor and power and righteousness of Christ. And uh, Lord, what a small thing that for these few years we have on earth, we have to endure a bit of hardship. But what a joy knowing that everything that comes into our life, you will use uh, to produce in us Christ-like character. If we will be people who truly love you and embrace passionately your purpose and will. So Lord, we ask that you would make us those kind of people who love you, who love your plan and purpose and are delighted to be part of it in the center of it and to see it unfold every day in our life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.